you know, I kind of grew up with these uh, misconceptions in a way about um, what what a professional musician should be. And I wasn't just denied a visa, but I was yelled at by the consul general um, at the Russian embassy. I had to basically pay a friend who had a friend at the embassy who resubmitted my paperwork. It was super, super dodgy and expensive. The things that were said in their media were the exact kind of uh, mirror copy of what was being said in the Western media about Russia, except they were saying it about the West. We live in a real world that, you know, requires us to pay rent and, and, and to to have money. And so that that enters the picture. Say if you were David Guetta, right, you would probably not want to grant me 50% of your master rights. So there's there's royalties, like there's, um, there's publishing rights and then there's master rights, right? Because a song really, if you make a great track, like if you write one hit, you can have passive income for the rest of your life. And this is my big piece of advice for people who are starting out. This podcast is sponsored, and if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see exactly who by. The clothing that I'm wearing is from the company that have sponsored this podcast, Waves Clothing. They're an up-and-coming streetwear fashion brand who've worked with people such as Scotty T on a number of collaborations. I reached out to the founder because I use their product their clothing and I said hey would you like to sponsor the podcast and they did and they've offered 10% off their entire range so use the link in the description in the bio uh, to check them out thank you cool so Denise so for those who listen to this podcast know that I always tend to start at the same place which is childhood it almost helps us paint a picture for the person that you've become so I guess my first question to you is, what were you like growing up? What was I like growing up? Um, I didn't feel like a kid. I think I got thrown into uh, the fire, so so to speak, the creative fire um, early on. Um, I was born into a family of sculptors and artists, so I was exposed to um, art and sculpture and music and uh philosophy and uh, dance at a very early age. Um, So I guess I didn't really have a conventional upbringing. Like I never went to kindergarten. I never went to daycare um, because my parents worked at home. Like we worked, uh, we lived in an art studio, which was like a loft that like doubled up as our home for the first like six years of my life. Then we got another home. (laughs) Um, And uh, so, yeah, I, essentially lived in a museum and I used to complain about it a lot because I'd go visit my friends and they'd have these like organized like normal looking homes and I'd come back to my home and it was literally like living in an art gallery or a museum and um, but it definitely had its benefits I mean what I got to do from, you know, the age of two and three, like my parents would just leave me with tons of art supplies and kind of like 
guide me a little bit, um, teach me about composition and color theory. And I learned all of this, like, as soon as I could pretty much crawl <laughs> um, before I could even walk. So um, I was actually a, ch a child artist. Um, I had my first, uh, I guess, major art exhibit at a gallery um, at the age of four. I used to sell like little sculptures and stuff to a, a local museum. And it all felt super normal because I didn't know any different. Now looking back at it, I think like, wow, that's a pretty extraordinary like childhood in terms of um, having a career between the ages of like four and 10. Like I never had this moment of, oh, what do you think you're going to be? I always kind of like I knew I was an artist and I, I always thought I would be an artist. And then music entered into my life a little bit later. Um, I started playing flute when I was seven. Um, I had an amazing, amazing instructor, my music teacher, who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, and it started out with flute. I was in like Russian, you know, uh, music school. So it was pretty serious. And, uh, I was at orchestra level by the age of nine. Um, so <laughs> my parents were like making me practice, you know, once a day, like an hour a day, then I would do an hour at school. And, um, it was amazing because I, I learned music theory and all of those things. And, um, then I started singing. Uh, just for myself. Uh, then I started going to choir. I remember they put me in alto. I've always wanted to be a soprano because I always wanted to sing the melody. And like, so yeah, I, I, art and music kind of like intertwined throughout my life, like from early childhood. And then music was something that I, I guess, chose to do for myself professionally where I didn't have any connections. And then art sort of was, you know, given to me since birth and that's something that I've always and to to this day still do um, because it's a part of me. Yeah. How strict was Russian uh, music school? Um, I know it could could have been way stricter than it was. I mean, I had a lovely, lovely teacher. Um, I wasn't the most focused child. I always would overachieve. But I think, you know, it back in, so to give the backstory, I grew up in the former Soviet Union. So I grew up in Kazakhstan, which is actually Central Asia, but it used to be um, under Russian rule, so to speak. Um, sort of for people who don't know it, sort of to put it in perspective, like a colony. Um, and uh, so it was a lot softer there, I would say. Um, but still, we didn't have, you know, nowadays you go like, oh, you know, so-and-so has ADD or ADHD or, or dyslexia or whatever. And, and you can say, okay, so the child's not focusing properly or they can't like, you know, spell certain things. And back then we didn't really have those things. Like we, we I don't think they still do. Like they, I don't think they diagnose anybody with ADD and I certainly had it um, because I had a lot of trouble concentrating on things that I didn't love to do. Uh, so music was one of them because I mean, anyone who's learned an instrument from an early age knows that, you know, you're not exactly passionate about it when you're, you know, six, seven, eight years old. Uh, it's more of something like you have to do and your parents like kind of, you know, shove you into it. Um, I wanted to play piano, but because of, uh, 
my nature. My mom was like, we're not playing, uh, we're not buying a piano in case you decide you don't want to do it tomorrow. So <laughs> they bought a flute. Um, and yeah, it, it was pretty strict. I mean, there's a huge, like, there's a very high standard. Um, I would say the Russian school, the Chinese school, the Ukrainian school, uh, Kazakh school of uh, musical upbringing and dance. It's extremely strict, but that's why you have, you know, some of the the best ballet comes from uh Eastern Europe, some of the greatest musicians come from Eastern Europe, because from a very early age, there's not really a this understanding of like, oh, it's a child, you know, go easy on them. The, no, you're it's militant, you know, style. This is the standard and you have to achieve it. And it doesn't matter if you're seven. Or, I mean, there's this like concept that if you didn't start you know, ballet at the age of five, you'll never be a professional ballerina. If you didn't start playing piano at the age of four, you'll never be any good at piano. And so there's a, you know, I kind of grew up with these uh, misconceptions in a way about um, what, what a professional musician should be, because I remember being 14 years old and I already thought I was too old to learn guitar. And that actually stopped me from, you know, learning and uh, being proficient in guitar, where I could have picked it up at 14, I could have picked it up at 16, I could have picked it up at 17, I had three guitars at home, but I didn't touch them because there was always a voice at the back of my head going like, you didn't start when you were five, so you're always going to be crap. Um, <laughs> so that's uh, sort of like the dark side of that school. But the light side is that, you know, it's, I guess, through a bit of stepping on child rights and uh, and sort of, uh, you know, I guess the, the kindness that you should allot a child, you know, they, they raise some spectacular, spectacular talent because it's all done at such a, an early age. How long were you growing up in the Soviet Union for? Were you there all your life or because you're from Canada, aren't you, originally? I was... So I was born actually in Kyrgyzstan. Um, two weeks later, my parents took me to Kazakhstan. My passport actually says I was born in Kazakhstan because my papers were done in, uh, in, uh, in Kazakhstan, in Almaty. And then I stayed there for 10 years. So essentially that's my home. I have uh, very fond but little recollection of Kyrgyzstan because we only went there for holidays. Um, so for all intents and purposes, Kazakhstan was my home for the first 10 years of my life. And then we moved to Canada. Um, and from then on, my life was in Canada. And uh, that's where I became a musician. Um, and yeah, a lot of things changed. Bit of a off topic question quickly. Do you, do you think the media um, misportrays Russia? Or do you think they are a bit, bit dodgy? <laughs> I would say that I'll give you an example. So in 2014, um, there was a lot of tension around Crimea. I don't know if you remember this. Um, there, there was, you know, basically they were saying, you know, we're going into another cold war and, and all those things. And I was actually traveling between Canada and Russia at the time. 
or I was trying to, and I've never had issues um, getting a visa to travel to, to Russia. I've stayed in Moscow many, many times. Um, my mother's family are there. And uh, so I went to the embassy and I was actually denied a visa. And I wasn't just denied a visa, but I was yelled at by the consul general um, at the Russian embassy. And uh, he threatened me with like, that they were going to bar me from like ever entering again or something. There was something, uh, I think there was something not wrong with my paperwork, but there were, there was something was not the way that it was supposed to be. Um, and he thought I did it on purpose. And so I had to basically pay a friend who had a friend at the embassy who resubmitted my paperwork. It was super, super dodgy and expensive. Um, and I, I don't know if I should be saying this out loud, but, um, so anyway, I ended up getting my visa, um, legally, like it was stamped by the embassy and everything and, uh, and going, uh, going to Russia. And at the time I was aware of all the things said in the media, say in the West, right. Um, about what Russia was, what they were doing, da da da. da. Um, so I went to Russia, and I was in Russia, and I kind of had this moment, like, wow, um, because the things that were said in their media were the exact kind of uh, mirror copy of what was being said in the Western media about Russia, except they were saying it about the West, if that makes sense. So there was like propaganda on both sides, kind of like slamming the other side. And so if you were, say, Canadian living in Canada, you would go like, oh, you know, they've done so and so like they, they've been doing all these like terrible things. And then if you were Russian living in Russia, you would think that, oh, my God, you know, Canadians, Americans, they're terrible people. They've been doing this and that. Um, and I understood in that moment just how the media creates their own truth because we don't know what the truth is. We're not on the ground. We will never know what the truth is exactly as it is. We get all of our news from, you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth person accounts, right? And and most of them through the media. But in that moment, I realized how much, for example, the things they were saying about Canada and Canadians, how much of that wasn't true, right? And then uh, how much I knew wasn't true about, uh, say, Russian citizens that I heard like overseas. So I realized that the media kind of has its own lens and who it benefits. I, I don't know who it benefits or who who pays them or doesn't pay them. But I realized that, you know, you have to take everything with a grain of salt because we actually don't know the truth. And from my vantage point and my perspective, and this is what I find so heartbreaking about today's situation, is that I have Ukrainian friends who are just the most incredible people in the world. I have Russian friends who are just the most incredible people in the world. And to me, those two nations were always, they weren't just friends, they were like brothers and sisters. Like they were family. I, I had... I, I was just, I was blown away at what could happen to that family. And that's what's so heartbreaking because people are being pit against each other. I, you know, the other day I was talking to somebody, I'm part, um, I'm half 
yeah, I would say I'm half Russian um, on my mother's side. My mother is also a little bit mixed. Um, but I was in Indonesia at a cafe um, and I heard a girl speaking Russian and I said, oh, you speak Russian. And she was kind of like, yeah. And I said, oh, I'm I speak Russian, too. Like, I'm part Russian. And I just got this dark look. And I it's just so heartbreaking that like the amount of negative consequences that are happening as a result of people making really poor choices where you could be in Indonesia and suddenly, you know, in certain circles, it's no longer okay to say that you're part Russian, right? Or if you're in Russia, say in certain circles, it's no longer okay to say that you're Ukrainian or part Ukrainian. Like it's truly heartbreaking. Um, and I, I find that that's, you know, wars happen and it's a tragedy and then nobody really understands the the larger fallout from things like this where you know it's suddenly after 9-11 right if you were muslim or if you were of arab origin uh suddenly it was dangerous in some places to even mention that or to show your face um you know when covid happened suddenly there was all this uh, racism and hate against Asian people, like that's the part that I find really heartbreaking is that in the face of tragedy and danger, we tend to put a face on, I guess, the, the danger or the negativity or, and, and we tend to profile everybody with that face as being the reason, you know, that something happened. And I, I feel like it's extremely unintelligent and very, very tragic when that happens, because if people, you know, from <laughs> if they weren't thinking that before from all the Hollywood movies, you know, that always profile Russian people as terrorists. Um, I mean, now it's going to be extremely difficult to rehabilitate that image, if not impossible. And the tragedy of it being is that it is actually a beautiful country with beautiful people. There's people there that can be just as bad and make just as bad of decisions as anywhere else in the world. Um, but unfortunately, those people became the face of that nation. And I don't know how long that's going to continue for, but um, yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, definitely. And to be fair, a few years ago, if you asked me what does a Russian or a Ukrainian look like, I'd think a massive hench, like, bodybuilder, scary, would just run at war, guns, all this sort of stuff. But like Ukrainians have started coming over here as well because obviously they're, they're fleeing and they a lot have moved into like my village. And I've got like chatting, meeting some of them. And they're actually, they actually say the Russians are actually very, very nice people. And they have a lot of Russian friends, obviously can't really be friends. Because they're, they're, it's like, you know, if, if you knew... Like if you grew up, say, in Ukraine or Russia, um, say even like 20 years ago, 10 years ago even, um, I mean, they're literally brothers and sisters. They're intertwined. That's how close these two nations are. And it, that's exactly it. It's, you know, there's, I, I can't, <laughs> like, I can't separate them. It's, it's a tragic conflict within a family 
that like that's what it is to me you know i had an ex for a number of years who was ukrainian who was a russian citizen right his family was half russian half ukrainian um we always experienced the best of both cultures those i mean his family fought in the war with russia against the germans in world war ii uh my grandparents on my mother's side fought against the germans in world war ii in the russian army like there there's yeah it's just it's such a mess yeah definitely well back to music then um I think my ne- next question to you is obviously you, you mentioned your journey from like being in school, learning instruments, all this sort of stuff. When did you first realize that shit, I might be able to make a living out of this? Um, I don't think I've ever, ever had that moment. I kind of, I'm an emotional picker, I would say. Like I, I choose things based on how, how I feel. So I think with music, it was more, oh my gosh, I want to feel like this for the rest of my life. You know, when I'm performing, when I'm writing, um, when I'm singing, because of how other people's music made me feel, I thought, you know, and how I felt while performing, I thought if I could wake up every single day and feel like this, I would be the most blessed person in the world. And then obviously, you know, we live in a real world that, you know, requires us to pay rent and, and, and to, to have money. And so that, that enters the picture also, but I would say that that wasn't the driving force. And also for anybody who is in the music or our industries knows that, um, you know, if you're lucky, that comes as a result of really hard work, um, long-term really hard work, but that's definitely, you know, if you want to make good money, that's, that's not the industries that you go, go for. It's usually, you know, crazy people who, uh, (laughs) who are so in love with their craft that they can't picture doing anything else. They, those people go for the, for the art world, for the music world. It's, it's definitely not like a, one of those careers where, you know, you work for two or three years and you'll be making half a million dollars a year. <laughs> definitely. I am curious. I've had a few singers, artists come on and both of them, three of them, all three of them have had said different answers to this question. You've obviously released, I think, 45 singles what does your song creation process look like? It depends. Um, I usually work into streams. So I write, uh, I produce my own tracks. I either work with other producers. If I'm, um, say, writing a top line for somebody else's instrumental, they will send me sort of a beat. This is when I work on club music. Um, they'll send me a beat and then I'll kind of vibe with it. Um, if I like it, a melody, like a vocal melody will come to me right away and then words, and I will write a top line, um, on that instrumental. If I'm working on something a little more traditional, like a pop song or a singer songwriter type of song, um, I will just sit in my room with a guitar and like strum a couple of things out or with a piano and, build some chords. And then again, I'm building sort of a foundation for the song to rest upon. 
So I'll do that. I'll write my verses, my hooks, um, and then I'll hand that over to a more proficient instrumentalist who can actually create, you know, intelligent chords around the composition because mine will just be kind of stray notes or a bit of strumming. Um, but the bare bones will be there and then I'll hand it off and we'll build it together. Um, those are the two ways I think I prefer working. Sometimes I will have acapellas, um, but that usually happens as a result of a, sort of a, I wouldn't say a failed collaboration, but say I'm collaborating with somebody and for some reason um, when we've written the track, uh, either, you know, our direction changes or something changes and I've got these acapellas, then I'll hand them off to somebody else and they'll build a beat around it. And I find for some reason, um, a lot of producers in the electronic genre prefer acapellas so they can build around it. And I, as a songwriter and as a singer, prefer beats to write the acapellas too. So I, I find that building from an acapella is a bit of a backwards process for me, um, even from a production side, because when I'm building tracks myself, I I always still start with the instrumental. So it's it, it, it's different for everybody, but yeah, those those two ways are my I would say predominant process. You ever had any um, failed collaborations or any failed songs? I, I presume you have. Of oh yeah, tons. <laughs> um, I would say, I guess like failed collaborations are there's no there's no real failed collaboration because what happens is that even if say I start writing a track with you and for some reason you know we divorce in the process and decide not to go forth with the track. I still have a brand new song in acapella. You still have your beats, right? So the great thing about that is you kind of store it in your catalog and then you can give it to somebody else or you can build your own thing with it. Um, so it's all the great thing about failed collaborations is uh, they you just create more material to work with just further on in the future. Um, but definitely I've had like moments where say um, someone will approach me to do a collaboration and uh, I haven't had those for a few years now because I'm really picky, but before I would kind of say yes to a lot of people and then we get to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm done the acapellas and I send them over and then I realize that the individual on the other end can't really produce vocals. Like you can hear it right away because the, they sound really awkward on top of the instrumental. So, of course, if the, if the quality of the production isn't there, then I don't approve the track and then it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, or, yeah, mostly I'd say a couple of times that happened. Um, and then sometimes this hasn't happened for, I'd say, a good seven years. But um, early on in my career, what a lot of songwriters and singers are not aware of when they're just starting out is um, there's a lot of, uh, there's contracts involved. Like if you and I were to write a song, for example, we have to discuss, okay, uh, what are your terms? Um, are we on the same plane? Uh, say if you were David Guetta, right? You would 
probably not want to grant me 50% of your master rights. So there's, there's royalties, like there's, uh, um, there's publishing rights and then there's master rights. Right. And the conversation you always have to have before getting to work with anybody. Um, and this is my big piece of advice for people who are starting out, um, is you have to make sure you're on the same page because if the track gets made and if it gets signed, somebody's going to get paid. And you have to make sure that, you know, you have all your ducks in a row and you're on the same page in regards to who owns what in the composition. So, for example, if we're co-writing, usually I do a 50-50% split. So we're both co-writing a track. It's fair that we split it 50-50. If there's more artists, you split it three ways, four ways, depending on how much work somebody put in. Generally, if it's a producer and a singer, uh, sorry, producer and a songwriter, it's a 50-50 split. That's a fair split. Um, a lot of, I would say when I was less experienced, working with more experienced producers, nobody wants to give you things unless you ask for them. So I worked with a lot of unfair splits where they said, well, I'm a bigger name, so... I'm going to give you a smaller cut, which is actually unfair. Like they can do that and they will do that. But technically the fair thing is a 50, 50 split. Then you have the master rights. Uh, the master rights are the rights to the finished recording. So the publishing rights are the songwriters rights. The master rights are say I'm singing on a track, right? Who owns that recorded vocal, who owns that recorded instrumental. Um, this is something producers really don't want to give up. So Sometimes you'll, if you are a singer and songwriter on a record, right, they will try to say, oh, well, you have 50% publishing uh, off this track, right? But hey, I still sang on this track, right? So it's my voice now worth. Um, and you either have to get a buyout, so you have a rate at which that producer pays you, and then they don't give you any rights to the master, um, or you have to negotiate some sort of a split in the master, um, because the master rights usually belong to the person who produced the track or, or who like recorded, you know, on the track. Um, so there were some failed collaborations because of that, because I would, you know, start working with somebody and I would be too shy or whatever to, uh, to discuss that with them. Or I would want to discuss that and they'd be like, oh, later, later, don't worry. Right. And then we'd get to signing the track and suddenly they don't want to give up any percentage of their rights and you know I had to go well sorry then you have to pull my vocal and my work off the track because you know I put in 50% of the effort into getting the song ready so uh yeah there were some of those too <laughs> now there's nothing because I just I work with incredible people and I never have to have these conversations anymore thank god <laughs> Say um, David Getter approached you and he's like, I've got this sick new beat. I want you to sing on this track. What sort of, if it happened, what sort of um, percentage would that sort of deal look like, do you reckon? What my terms would be? Yeah, what, what for someone that size. See, it would depend because... People like, I, I, I'm not saying him per se, because I don't know what he does, but um, people who are really in the game at a very high level prefer to buy 
um, I would say the rights to what you're doing. So because it's a say David get a track, right. And it's going to go out there and make, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or he's going to gig with it. He's, he's going to license it. There's going to be more money coming in. And because a song really, if you make a great track, like if you write one hit, you can have passive income for the rest of your life. And, and probably, you know, if you're into a humble lifestyle, you don't ever have to work again. That's how those, those things work. Um, so I know that, you know, friends of mine that have worked with really, really big names, they usually got get bought out. So somebody will, the management will approach them and they, they will say, you know, we want your vocal on this track. Um, if that artist say, if I'm not a name artist um, and David Guetta doesn't have say anything to gain by putting my name on his record, um, they will usually approach you and say, we'll pay you this much, you will record this vocal and then we own it. And then you would sign out your rights to that vocal. You would not get a featured artist credit. Um, there's actually a lot of tracks like that. Like if you listen to some of the biggest club hits in the past decade, um, you'll hear these like awesome voices on it, but it won't have a featured artist. And that what, that's what happens. So they got a top line vocalist who came in, likely didn't write the top line somebody else wrote it they probably got paid they either got paid a couple of thousand dollars or a grand or sometimes they don't get paid at all because it's some you know young impressionable girl or guy sitting in a recording studio and someone comes in and they go like oh my god you know so and so really loves your voice would you like do this thing on their track and a lot of what happens in the music industry is people try to leverage names and power in order to say, do this for exposure, you know? So there's been times when I know people have done tracks and like, they didn't get paid a, a dime because they said, well, if you do this for this artist, then you'll get all this exposure. The thing is exposure is a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because in order to have it, you actually have to have your name on the track, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so yeah, there's there's all kinds of things that happen. But usually, bigger artists will try to buy smaller artists out of the rights to the composition because, thanks to their star power, that track is going to go miles, and um, they want to, they and their team and their label want to keep as much of it as possible. Someone like. David Guetta then, and, and let's say Ed Sheeran or Justin Bieber or Grande, like these big artists, I presume he wouldn't buy them out. He would he would do a split with them. They would probably, I mean, again, I'm speculating, like I hope they don't like sue me for defamation or something. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Here I am. Oh, this is what this artist would do. Um, no, I, I think... From my experience of working for a major label, um, usually, usually these artists partner up because there is a mutual benefit in it. Um, at that level, most of the things are done not because you know someone sounds cool; it's because you know it's going to be a great commercial success. Um, so their teams would negotiate everything, and then those artists would do a collaboration, and and then both benefit from it. But again, it's like there's a lot of there's huge teams involved. There's managers, agents, booking agents, lawyers, uh, because again, even at that level, you know, when it, when two huge superstars do a track together, there's uh, 
you know, they might catch a drink at a bar and, and be friendly with each other, but then their labels and their management is trying to get as much as possible for their own client, right? So the, there's a lot that goes on um, behind the scenes that people are not aware of. <laughs> um, I also read that you're a scenic artist. You've worked on films such as Shazam, Suicide Squad and Pacific Rim. Um, for those who don't know, and I, I did have to do my research into this, but it might be worth explaining. What does that actually actually mean? What is a scenic artist? So um, whenever you see a large production, say like a TV series or a, a film, there's like thousands of people involved in, in, you know, in making that film happen. And we have different departments like costumes and makeup and, and scenic art construction. It's also scenic art is housed under construction. So you have the construction department, which houses carpenters, carpenters, welders, everybody who builds the set. And then you have the scenic art team who works under the direction of a designer and an art director to actually make the, their vision into reality. So um, on any given production, we will have a designer who basically creates the look for a specific production. We will have the art director who is in charge of doing the budgeting, um, kind of like taking the vision of the designer and making, making it into reality um, and also being aware of like the budget constraints and what we can and can't do and in what location and uh, yada, yada. And uh, then you have a team of scenic artists. It can be, you know, small, tiny productions will have a designer who's also the art director and the scenic artist. Um, large Hollywood productions like Shazam will have a designer, art director, 200 scenic artists. Um, at, in the scenic art team, there will be a key scenic artist. There will be a head painter. There will, there, it's a huge hierarchy of people. And basically, um, we're tasked to with bringing the the vision of the designer to life so building these sets creating these sculptures and art pieces and it's a it's an extremely difficult job um in terms of physically and the hours um you can be working anywhere from 10 to 16 hours a day um for months at a time because an average production can last from you know a month to a year and, uh, but it's, it can be a very rewarding job. You learn so much, uh, for me, it's really been gratifying working on these projects because it's a continuation of my, you know, childhood art chops. <laughs> um, so it's kind of, I, I, that, that's what my artistic past naturally brought me to. Um, and that's how I fulfilled that calling. Uh, and that's also how early on I was able to fund my music career because recording music at a very professional level takes a lot of money. Um, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars um, and not making it back in the first, like on an average in the first few years. They say that it on an average it takes eight years for someone to be discovered overnight. Um, so you're making, of course, there's, you know, there's stories of somebody was in the studio at the right moment. And then within, you know, six months, their career blew up. Um, those stories exist. But on an average, it takes about, you know, I think they said three to eight years 
for three to 10 years for an artist to, uh, to gather enough momentum where they're playing places like Coachella. I mean, I've seen my friends who played Coachella, like they, uh, they started in 2007, I believe in 2008. And then they played Coachella in 2019, 2018. That's how long it took. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, unless you come from a really wealthy family or you've got a wealthy partner or some sort of a sponsor going on, you have to have a second job, which pays well enough that, um, that you're able to afford the journey, so to speak. So that I was very fortunate to, to have that be my second passion, which is art and to work in film. That sort of leads on to my um, next question a little bit, because I didn't to be fair, I didn't realise how tough it was. My the girl I'm I'm dating at the moment, she sings on like a professional level. She's, she's quite big Latina artist. She's um going on tour at the moment and she's like, It's great, I'm going on tour, but I will lose thousands of pounds because I've got to pay the dancers and it's not paying as well. And I didn't realise and then there's the mental health struggles as well. So people look at her and they think, Wow, she's got this incredible lifestyle. She's like number eight in like the hip hop iTunes charts at the moment. She's got this incredible lifestyle, whatever. And then I speak to her and I see the real her and I realize how tough it actually is that people don't see. That leads on to my next question, which is, have you had any like mental health struggles? Have you had some nights where you've just really struggled or is it all glam and fancy? (laughs) Oh, definitely. Oh my gosh. Um, starting from when I first was starting. So when I was, I think 14, I recorded my first demo or something and you go through so much rejection and you have so many moments of like, you're bawling your eyes out. You're like, you know, throwing things against the wall and like, you're like, is this ever going to happen? And, and sometimes, you know, it's a lot of frustration with yourself because Obviously, when you're just starting out, I was extremely hard on myself. I never allowed myself to make any mistakes. And I think that's just the way I was brought up. Um, I think it's in my blood. Like what we talked about earlier is that, you know, you're never taught that it's okay to make mistakes. They're, you know, they're good for learning. Um, I just, every failure was just, I I think I was, no one else was punishing me. I was punishing myself. Um, and yeah, of course you get, you get depressed, you get anxiety, you get a a whole of, you know, and that, that's just, uh, that's just trying to do the work, you know? And then when other people enter, um, the picture, I mean, it's entertainment and the entertainment industry from all ends, from film to, you know, arts, to music, to, to dance, it's rampant with people with personality disorders, you know, because what, what, what are we all after? It's, it's attention, right? Um, so the entertainment industry is rampant with people with like sociopathy or narcissism at different levels. And, and, you know, if you're lucky that you don't develop one of those, uh, disorders, then you have to work with people who have them, you know? (laughs) So, (laughs) so you have to deal with like a lot of like, really high pressure situations and sometimes evil things and people doing evil things. And, 
And sometimes you, you know, you exit uh, and you're not like exit out of the situations and you're not the same person again. And I've seen this industry break a lot of people like it's and before they even before anyone ever knew of them, even, you know, just from the process of being in studios. I mean, imagine being a 17 year old girl and like I was so many times scouted, you know, through my space at the time, um, scouted by like producers who were attached to big labels like EMI or, uh, or universal or whoever. And then you would get into their studios and you're 17 years old and there's a 40 year old man basically telling you to turn around so he could look at your butt, you know, or asking you if you've ever had an affair or, uh, just a lot of like, a lot of inappropriate things that a lot of teenagers or minors are not equipped to handle. And this is normal as we've seen, you know, with the whole Me Too movement and like the Jeffrey Epstein stories and all these things. It's, it's so rampant and it's so normalized. I remember when I had those experiences, I, of course, I felt uncomfortable. I never got taken advantage of, thank God, because of the way I was raised. I was a very old soul when I was a teenager. So I would just kind of, if I saw that I would walk away before anything bad happened. But um, yeah, there's, especially for females, especially for young females, it's a very cutthroat industry. Um, and it's uh, a lot of it is learning how to navigate your way through the trenches where a lot of like, I would say bad people have a lot of power, um, but those are the people that can give you what you need. So it's it's a very, you have to be extremely good at psychology and just reading people and, and believing in yourself because at the end of the day, that's the most important part is you have to believe in your own talent um, because you will be, I hope today people are not faced with this choice, but when somebody is dangling a major label contract in front of your face, um, if you, you know, spend the weekend with them for a lot of young women, that's a very difficult choice to make if they have no other, you know, support or income or whatever. So. Yeah. I've heard a lot of stories, uh, recently and I'm not from like, the music world it's sort of a I'm gonna ask another question quick but like I'm not from the music world and she tells me a lot of these stories of like 18 year old girls young girls that it's happening to exact same to be fair some are worse than what you've you've said do you think do you think someone not in the music industry can date someone from the music industry because I hear these stories and I I'll admit I don't know how to deal with them because I'm I'm not from that world and it seems shit to be honest like <laughs> yeah <laughs> um definitely and I actually have I don't know if it was a rule I set for myself or I just I've never dated anyone in my industry um and my boyfriend right now is has nothing to do with the music industry um which i love i think uh it's definitely possible i mean some people will tell you that you know oh it's 
you will not understand and like musicians have to date each other. I don't believe that at all. Um, I think that it's just up to personal preference. And yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's ultimately it's like, it's about your partner, right? Because the entertainment industry is definitely a very interesting world. <laughs> um, but if you meet a good person and they know how to navigate that without losing or compromising their values and their self-worth, um, I don't think it's any different than any other industry. Um, it could become problematic if, again, if your partner doesn't know how to navigate that industry and, and falls prey to all of those things, it could be very difficult to watch or experience um, as a partner. But I think that for me personally, it hasn't been a problem. And yeah, I've, I've never really dated anyone in, in music. Fair enough. Right. Final question then. The one I, I ask everybody, if you could choose to do one thing, one like, I, I always use the phrase gig, but I'll explain a bit more. It doesn't need to be a musician, like a music gig. So like when I say gig, it could be like play at Soccer Aid or do this or do that. If you could choose one thing, one gig that you could do in your lifetime, what would it be and why? Oh, <laughs> hmm. I like creating new and unusual, I guess, experiences. So within, within my field, so I will choose music within my field, I would say that I would love to have a gig, like a, do like a live vocal DJ set or something, um, probably in Egypt. Um, in the Valley of the Kings, like if you could set up like a giant stage there, you know, surrounded by pyramids. And then I would invite um, a few of my favorite artists, like my heroes, like Sting, for example, um, and put together a show with them. I think if I could play with some of the greats and have it be in a place like that, like in an epic, just like surrounded by pyramids or, you know, near the Oracle of Delphi, um, or somewhere, you know, I don't know, below the Sphinx or something like that. Um, I always think in terms of, you know, what would be the, the peak sonic experience for me and what would be the peak visual experience for me as an artist. Um, and I think it's, it's playing with my favorite artists in the most beautiful place on earth. So the first thing that I think about is the, the pyramids. Yeah. This gig sounds incredible. If you ever make this happen, I hope you send me a ticket. I will invite you. <laughs> I will invite you. Amazing. Denise, it's been a pleasure to get you on today. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. It was lovely. I really, I really enjoyed your questions. I, I feel like they were very, um, like, challenging in a good way. Like, I love talking about things that you know kind of some people would like be like oh hot potato hot potato don't touch that don't touch that. like <laughs> for example artists try stay away usually from politics because there's you know you're gonna make someone mad um but i i really love that we had those conversations because i think they need to be had and more people need to talk about them <laughs>